Good morning. Today is October 24th, 2013. I'd like to welcome you to this edition of Understanding the Law. I'm your host, Peter Lamont. I'm a business and personal law attorney and the principal of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont. The firm has offices in New York, New Jersey, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law is a weekly radio broadcast where we discuss a variety of legal topics that affect our listeners. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. If you'd like to discuss any of today's topics or if you have a separate legal question, I encourage you to give us a call. Our switchboard number is 347-855-8831. We'll try to get through as many calls as possible. So we are about a week away from Halloween, and I want to talk today um, on our first segment about Halloween and homeowners liability. And this is is interesting because we posted something this week on one of our blogs about liability and protecting yourself as a homeowner from premises issues during Halloween. And we got a few comments concerning how we're taking the fun out of Halloween and Halloween should just be about kids dressing up. And, you know, it's true that Halloween is about fun, but as a homeowner, you work very, very hard to um, get a house, to maintain your house, and you pay a lot of money every year in insurance premiums for your homeowner's policy. So I think that in today's litigious society, it's really appropriate to understand what liability exists with respect to something as fun and simple as Halloween trick-or-treating. So it may sound a little negative and pessimistic, but if you heed the advice that we're going to talk about today, I think that you'll be able to enjoy Halloween happier and not worry about potential liability. So the first issue that's out there is obviously premises liability you're essentially opening up your home to trick-or-treaters. And most of these trick-or-treaters, you know, at least around our area, are somewhere between the ages of, you know, three, maybe two, three to seven or eight years old. And then, of course, there's the older kids that come later at night. But let's focus on this this area of, of, you know, two to seven-year-olds. It's important. I'll explain why in a minute. But you're inviting these people to your home and you're handing out candy. And we need to analyze what your duty is with respect to keeping your property in a safe condition. Now, most states have a distinction as to uh, what to call somebody who comes onto your property. They're either a trespasser, that's somebody who's not authorized to come onto your property at all, uh, an invitee which is typically somebody that you ask onto your property and they're going to be there for your benefit. So if you hire a tree cutting service or uh, a landscaper, they're considered under most states' laws to be an invitee. And then there's the social guest. Social guest is somebody that you invite over, but there's no um, benefit aside from a social context. So you're not asking them to mow your lawn or you're not asking them to trim your trees. So that's the typical 
distinction between the types of people that are going to enter your property. And again, everybody's law in their individual states may be slightly different, but this is the general common law view. Now, a trick-or-treater is considered a social guest under New Jersey law and most other states. You're inviting them onto your property, but they're not there to benefit you. You're viewing them as a social guest. And so what is your duty with respect to keeping your property safe for a social guest? Do you have to inspect the property? Should you be running around before Halloween looking for all these uh, potential pitfalls and trying to fix them? What's your duty? What's your legal obligation? So in, in New Jersey, a social guest has to accept the premises as he or she finds it. In other words, the owner of the property, the host of the social guest, has no obligation to make his home safer than he would for himself. And there's no requirement that you need to inspect the property. So from a legal standpoint, in New Jersey, in most other states, as a social guest, your obligation as the homeowner, as the property owner, is to keep the premises in a reasonably safe condition, in the same reasonably safe condition that you would keep it for yourself. But you're under no special obligation to inspect the premises to keep it safe. Now, what does that mean, and how does that translate into real-world experiences and what you're going to encounter you know, next uh, Thursday on Halloween? Well, from a legal context, if someone were to be injured on your property, a trick-or-treater were to be injured, they would sue you. It would trigger your homeowner's insurance coverage, and your homeowner's insurance would either accept or deny the claim, and then they would litigate the case. Now, you would argue or your attorneys would argue that they were a social guest and that they had, you know, you as the landowner had no obligation to inspect the premises or uh, to keep it any safer than you would for yourself and that the defect that the trick-or-treater tripped or fell over was open and obvious and reasonable. Now, a lot of times what happens is the expense or burden of continuing on with a lawsuit sometimes outweighed by um, a very cheap settlement offer. In other words, you might have a plaintiff that's looking for a few thousand dollars and the cost to defend the case by the insurance company is going to exceed paying out a settlement of $5,000. And so the insurance company might just pay the plaintiff the $5,000. And that obviously has an impact on your homeowner's um, premiums as they'll go up that following year. So practically speaking, while you might not have this legal obligation to inspect, what should you do? Well, the first thing you should do is make sure that your homeowner's policy is paid, up to date, and that you understand what limitations there are under the policy. The last thing you want to do is have your policy lapse or be so limited in scope that it doesn't cover certain injuries or accidents that occur on your property. Now, the next thing you're going to need to do is, while you have no duty to inspect, it certainly makes sense for you to take a quick look and assess the condition of your property. 
this distinction between having a, a duty to inspect and let's say having uh, crumbling steps coming out of your front door, if they're unsafe and they're unsafe for you and they're unsafe for a trick-or-treater, the fact that you have no obligation or duty to inspect the condition is meaningless because the steps are in poor condition. So if a trick-or-treater falls on those steps, that condition is something that was reasonably foreseeable by you. You were aware of the condition, and you should have done something, either remedied the situation or warned your social guest, your trick-or-treater. So if you have stairs that are cracked or um, difficult way of getting up to your front or side entrance with respect to the way that the land is, whether there's potholes in your driveway, you're best off in making sure that the area leading up to where you're going to be giving out the candy is well lit and that it is free from any obstructions, free from any rocks or debris or rope or string or if you've got sections of your lawn roped off for whatever reason, make sure that a trick-or-treater can see it. Make sure that there's nothing unreasonable on the property. If you have a defective condition that you're aware of on your property, such as cracked steps, you would be better off meeting the trick-or-treaters at the bottom of the stairs instead of making them climb up the steps to you. Now, Another thing that is interesting in the realm of, of premises liability, remember we talked about the average age of the trick-or-treaters that you're probably going to encounter, and we talked about that age range being somewhere between two and seven years old. Why is that important? Well, in a typical premises liability case, once you get past the designation of the person on your property, trespasser, invitee, or social guest, and you establish your legal duty with respect to that person. If the other person contributed to his or her accident, you would be able to offset some of your liability under a theory of contributory negligence, where, in other words, the individual should have been more careful, should have looked where they were going, should have seen what was there to be seen. And so your damages, your liability, right, triggers damages. Let's say that somebody's injured and it, it is $100,000 in damages. But a jury finds that that individual was at fault, partially at fault. If it's you know, sometimes greater than a 51% allocation of fault, to the injured person, that could knock their claim out altogether. Or, you know, in, in most common circumstances, if you've got a $100,000 damage claim that, you you know, you've got liability and the damages that have been assessed are 100000 and the plaintiff was deemed to have been contributorily negligent, and maybe that was a 25% contribution, you're going to reduce your total damages that you owe by 25%. So contributory negligence works in the favor of the individual 
who was negligent. Because if you can prove that the injured party was also negligent, you can reduce your total damages by the percentage of contributory negligence on the part of the plaintiff. Now, how does that apply to someone who is seven years old or under? Well, in most states, including New Jersey, a seven-year-old, anyone under seven years of age, does not have the capacity to be negligent. The courts will not deem that anyone under seven owes a duty of care, can act in a negligent manner. And so on Halloween, if you've got a six-year-old trick-or-treater who trips over something on your property that you believe should have been open and obvious and, and not a big deal, not something that you needed to remedy, and that individual or their family on her behalf or his or her behalf sue you, and you try to allege, well, you know, this was all your fault. The child should have seen, he should have looked where he was going. And even if you find me to be negligent, the damages are all a result, essentially, of the plaintiff. So there's contributory negligence. And the courts will say, no, there's no contributory negligence on the part of the child. Because anyone under seven years of age does not have the requisite mindset to be negligent. And that you know, even goes beyond premises liability, but it's important here. So the idea that I want you to take away from this is that you have obligations to people that enter onto your property. And in this case, as the distinction, the distinction of a social guest, you have the ability or the uh, obligation, I should say, to keep your property in a reasonably safe condition. You don't need to inspect it. You don't need to uh, make all sorts of repairs, but you do need to keep it safe and you should make sure that it's well lit and that you have easy way for trick-or-treaters to come and, and you know, have you give them candy. Now, one other thing I want to talk about, which is a little off the topic of premises liability, but it, it does deal with Halloween. A few years ago, uh, there was a particular house in a neighboring town that liked to have a very ornate and uh, animated Halloween display on their front lawn. And what they loved to do is um, put one of, of the older kids, they had three kids, and they put the older kid in costume, and they'd put him in a coffin on the front lawn, and when trick-or-treaters would approach, he would jump out at them and, and scare them. And for the most part, you know, while it scared the pants off of most of these kids, it was fun and funny. Well, one of the trick-or-treaters was accompanied by her grandfather. The grandfather was in his late 60s, 68 or 69. And as they approached the front door, um, the homeowner's kid jumped out of the coffin and attempted to scare the trick-or-treater. And while she was scared, he also scared the grandfather to the point where the grandfather had a heart attack and died. So um, grandmother of the child and the family ended up suing the homeowner under a wrongful death claim and a negligence claim. And it ultimately settled out of court for a very significant amount of money. But it just 
illustrates the fact that even something as simple or what you deem to be fun as a prank on Halloween, because you know you could argue that people should expect it. It's reasonable to expect that you're going to see people in costume, but it's never reasonable to expect that as you approach a home that's offering candy for kids, that you're going to be scared to that extent. So with respect to your Halloween displays and the way that you intend on scaring the trick-or-treaters as they come to your door, if that's your thing, you must be aware of the fact that that does create liability for you. And that if somebody gets injured as a result of your prank, you will be sued. Your homeowner's insurance will be triggered. And you have to hope that whatever jury award is issued does not exceed the limits of your policy. So it's just something to be aware of. You know, and when I looked at some of these comments to some of the blog posts this week, you know, it was kind of surprising that, that people want to kind of gloss over the idea that liability is ripe with respect to Halloween. And that's not because you know, I'm a lawyer or we're thinking like lawyers. It's just a practical thing. Now, as a homeowner myself, I certainly wouldn't want to have a lawsuit filed against me because of something that I did or didn't do on my property. So I wanted to just share that with you. Now, the next topic, also fall-related and also interesting, deals with tree removal on your property. So as autumn is uh, you know, reaching its, its full swing and a lot of the leaves are falling off the trees. It gives homeowners an opportunity to look at the health of some of these branches that are attached to these monster trees in their yard. And oftentimes, um, you'll hear from tree cutting services that you know, autumn is one of the busiest times because the homeowners will see a branch that doesn't look good and they're preparing for winter and for heavy snow. and They want limbs or the whole tree taken down in order to prevent damage or injury during the winter. And you would think that this is a very simple thing that doesn't really have much liability associated with it, but believe it or not, it does. And there's two primary ways that liability can be attached to your tree removal issues. The first one is personal injury. Somebody could be injured while removing a tree. And it's not just the removal of the tree, it's the aftermath. So, for example, well, there was a case recently filed in, uh, I believe it was uh, Boston, where an individual was taking off limbs of a tree, and they had a tree service come out and do it, but they left some of the limbs in uh, precarious situations or positions and there was damage to the tree, and a strong wind had come, and the branches snapped off the tree, which had been trimmed, and landed in the road and struck a motorcyclist who was injured. So that's one way. But the other way, and the more common way, is a neighbor dispute. So oftentimes there's a, a tree that's close to your property line or on your property or what you believe to be your property, and you'll just go in and cut it down. And the next thing you'll know, you'll find out that you're being sued by your neighbor for taking down his or her tree, which they claim was on their property, 
Or I've even seen it where a neighbor would claim that your removal of the tree on your property has impacted their um, shade on their property or other issues. So what is your responsibility as a homeowner looking to remove a tree? Well, first thing you need to do is you need to make sure that the tree is actually on your property. And that might cause you to have to go out and get a survey done or to take a look at the survey that you received uh, as part of your closing documents when you purchased the home. But having a survey is really important because it identifies exactly whose tree it is, whether it's yours or your neighbor's. The next thing you need to do is, and this is just a neighborly suggestion, I would tell your neighbor that you are going to have someone in to remove the tree. And it does two things. One, you're a nice neighbor, and neighbors typically appreciate that, especially when you're going to bring a heavy truck in with guys and chainsaws and making a lot of noise. But more importantly, it gives your neighbor a chance to air any concerns without you asking the question, do you mind if I cut my tree down? If you approach your neighbor and you say to your neighbor, oh, hey, uh, you know, Mr. Smith, I've got this tree here. I just wanted to let you know that next Thursday I'm having it taken down. So I just wanted to give you a heads up because I know it'll be a little noisy. If Mr. Smith doesn't say anything to you and then later on tries to sue you because he says that you destroyed his uh, shade that he was uh, – had set up, you know, he had a pool and there was shade provided by that tree uh, and, you know, without warning, you took it down. Well, that's going to diminish his claim. It's, it's going to make him have really very little claim, if any. So that's important to do. Uh, the third thing you need to do is don't take the tree down yourself. Unless you work for or own a tree cutting service, do not try to do it yourself. A, you can be injured. B, you can cut the tree in an inappropriate manner and end up having portions of it fall onto your neighbor's property, injure somebody walking below, or weaken the, the tree like you know, what happened with this case in Boston where the motorcyclist was injured. So get a reputable tree cutting service. They need to be licensed. They need to have insurance. So just because they've got a great billboard on the highway or a great television commercial, you need to make sure that you see proof of insurance and that they have a contractor's license. Most states will require tree cutting services to have some form of contractor's license. And what's the fourth thing you need to do? Well, you need to make sure that you are in compliance with all of your local ordinances. A lot of towns throughout the country have created these shade tree commissions and their job is to plant trees throughout the, the towns and maintain the foliage. Uh, in our town in particular, there's a very strong shade tree commission and you're not permitted under town ordinances to remove a tree on your property unless it is dead or may cause damage to your structure or to somebody else's. And if you want to remove a healthy tree, you need to appear before the Shade Tree Commission and, and essentially ask permission to take your own tree down. The fines can be you know, relatively steep, a few thousand dollars, if you go ahead and take down a tree without checking 
upon, you know, or, or checking on compliance issues with your municipality. So those are the four things that you really need to do. And I'll share with you a quick story. A few years ago, uh, our firm was involved in a case in New York where there were two neighbors side by side and there was a fence going down uh, the property line or what was believed to be the property line separating the two houses. And there was a tree located on the left side of the fence. So one day, the uh, homeowners on the left side of the fence with the tree were having LIPA remove very high tree branches that were jutting out into power lines. So LIPA was there as part of a neighborhood-wide cleanup of tree topping to remove some of these dead branches that were interfering with the power lines. They were in the backyard and they were removing these branches. On the way out, the homeowner said, listen, I'm sure you guys do this on the side. There's a tree in the front of my yard. It's really annoying. I think that it's dead. I don't have any proof of that, but I just, you know, it doesn't, it's a lot of leaves. There's acorns. I just don't want it. Is there any chance that you guys could take it down? You're already here. So the LIPA employees say, well, we can't do it under LIPA because we'd get in trouble. But I do have my own tree cutting business. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come back and I'm going to cut down that tree for you. And here's the name of my tree service. So give me a day or so. So a day or so later, the guy comes back and he has a LIPA truck with him. And he goes onto the property and he gives them an invoice for his own company and he cuts down the tree. The neighbor on the right side of the fence comes running out after the tree is cut down and starts screaming about, this is a 100-year-old tree and you have no right to take it down and it's on my property. And the homeowner on the left said, no way, it's on my side of the fence. Well, the homeowner on the right pulls out the survey and shows that it was like 10 or 15 years before the homeowner on the left had moved in that the prior owner of that house had reached an agreement with the homeowner on the right that they would put up a fence because it looked aesthetically proper, but that the tree and the property line would extend beyond the fence and that the right property owner owned the tree. So the property owners sued, and they alleged all sorts of things, such as destruction of property, trespassing, negligence. They alleged that they had uh, you know, areas of shade that this tree provided, and by this negligent cutting down of the tree, they were damaged. And you'd think to yourself, well, how much money is this worth? What, what really could you get from a negligent tree removal case? Well, the homeowner on the right brought in an arborist and determined that the value of that tree was in excess of $200,000. And it sounds crazy, but the expert opined that in order to have a tree of this size and of this magnitude, it would have to grow for 100 years. And there'd be no way of replicating that tree and the shade and benefit provided by that tree by planting a new one. The expert also opined that based upon the root structure and photographs of the tree prior to its removal, that the tree was not damaged or dead. And ultimately, the case settled for $80,000. 
$80,000 for a trait. So I share that with you because it sounds like a silly thing and it sounds like we're making too much out of it. But neighbor disputes are, are something that everybody who owns a home or uh, you know rents a property has to deal with. And it's important to know what potential liability you have with respect to removal of a tree. All right, so now I'd like to move into the next topic. We're going to talk about some of the recent news developments. We've been following over the past few weeks um, the gay marriage issue in New Jersey. And this week, Governor Christie and his administration withdrew its appeal uh, and essentially cleared the way for gay marriage pursuant to the court's decision. Um, I think it was only a matter of time. We've talked about that before. And uh, you know, according to the governor, he was very upset by the fact that the constitutional process had been somewhat uh, evaded by the judge's ruling, but I am sure that his advisors had told him that there'd be very little chance of him winning this appeal, and so that appeal has been withdrawn. The next issue that uh, is pretty popular in the news is this idea of smart gun technology. So we know about all the tragedy that that occurs and uh, the school shootings and things like that. And so there's a company that is putting out a smart gun. And how this gun works is that there's, there's essentially a microchip in the gun and the accompanying bracelet. So the gun user would need to wear this bracelet and the microchip in the bracelet would transmit to the gun and it would allow the gun to fire. So this company has been working on prototypes and is very near finishing a, a final version that's going to be uh, ready for sale. And we're looking probably about a two, three-month period from now when we start seeing these guns hit the market. And it's interesting because in 2002, the state of New Jersey had adopted legislation that said that if and when technology is available to ensure gun safety, that all guns will be fitted with these safety devices once they come out. So, you know, back in 2002, the state of New Jersey, at least, was already thinking about ways to make guns safer. And now it looks like the, the day is finally here. Uh, this German company has created this technology. But here's the question that I have. Is that technology going to prevent tragedies and school shootings? Now, how many people believe that the bracelet technology is going to prevent another mass killing? You know, if you have your gun in a lockbox at home and you have your ammo separated from the gun and you have the box put away where your children can't reach it, you know, some argue that that is just as effective as this new smart gun technology. 
And I also argue that the smart gun technology is not going to stop criminals from killing and, and using guns for violence. It might possibly increase protection of you know, accidental shootings at home or kids who ensure that the guns are safely stored and, and kept from children. So, you know, it's interesting. We'll see where this plays out. We're going to put some questions up on the website and blog because we'd like to get everyone's opinion concerning the use of these smart guns and this smart gun technology and whether or not you think that it's going to prevent gun violence. Um, you know, serial numbers on guns are supposed to allow law enforcement to identify who the owner of that gun is and we all know that people that are, are you know, criminally minded, they'll shave off or, or remove the serial numbers. So it seems as though regardless of what protections you put in place, there's always going to be a way to get around them the same way there is with other technologies. Um, you know, technology to prevent MP3s to be copied and distributed. We all know that those things can happen. DVDs, technology to, uh, to rip a DVD and then resell that. So is this new handgun technology essentially the same thing? Are we just waiting for someone to be able to hack it? And how effective do you think that it is going to be in preventing violence? So it'll be interesting, and we'd like to hear what you have to say about that, and we'll certainly follow up with that in the next few weeks. All right, moving on, I want to talk about two interesting jury verdicts. The first one is a, uh, a premises case. It involves an individual who slipped and fell on ice outside of their condominium. And it was a 61-year-old gentleman who had fallen. He had a, uh, suffered a displaced ankle fracture, and it required surgery. And essentially, he claimed that the condo association, the homeowners association, failed to properly remove snow and ice from the sidewalk. And primarily, while the sidewalk was shoveled, there was a tremendous amount of ice buildup. It could have been resolved or remedied if they had thrown down some sort of ice melt or other um, melting agent. And the homeowners association blamed the snow removal company and the snow removal company turned around and said, well, the president of the homeowners association complained that he was tracking ice melt into his front entry way and wanted the ice melt stopped. So at the end of the day, the case settled for a total of $400,000. The breakdown was that the condo association contributed $365,000 and the snow removal contractor threw in $35,000. So it's interesting to see the blame game, which so often happens in litigation, and how it all plays out. Uh, the next one is, is very interesting. This one involves a party at the home of a high school parent. So... This occurred in uh, New Jersey, in Middlesex County, and back in 2009, 
a high school student had talked to his parents about having a party at their house. And the parents agreed, and they actually hired an off-duty police officer to run security at the front door, and they were charging a cover price for people coming into the party. And these were, were high school kids. So in the midst of the party, a group of individuals who were not invited, and we're not talking about a, a birthday party either. We're talking about a party with dancing and alcohol. We're talking about a, a typical you know, college-type party, but we've got high school kids involved. So this, this gang of three or four kids, they crash the party, and the security guard's unable to, to control the amount of kids in this home and these, these guys that are coming in to cause trouble. And the gang starts beating up the kids that are in the house. And the parents, they, they get all scared and they aren't thinking straight and they direct everyone to run out into the yard. And as they're running out into the yard, this one child in particular was grabbed by one of the gang members and punched and kicked and beaten to the point where he had sustained a broken jaw, a broken nose, facial fractures, um, lung and rib bruises, and, and ultimately was diagnosed with a permanent um, jaw joint condition. So the parents of the injured child sue the homeowner, and they allege negligence. And the homeowner's uh, home insurance policy is, uh, is, is triggered. And there's some issues concerning whether or not it should be covered under the policy. Where it was, uh, was there gross negligence involved on behalf of the hosting parents? And, you know, the parents argued that they weren't grossly negligent, that there was no way for them to have foreseen that this gang would crash the party, that they acted in a reasonable manner by hiring a security guard, and, and that this is essentially a freak accident that they shouldn't be responsible for. So ultimately, while the insurance coverage um, was there to cover the claim, the case settled for $125,000 for the, uh, the injured victim and basically um, had this case continued on at the trial level, it's highly likely that the award would have been higher because the fact that the parents were having a party in the home with so many people to the point where they were... were having security there, and then the idea of charging a cover charge. There's uh, language in the case from the judge during some motions where he, he views it as almost a commercial enterprise, you know, charging a cover charge. So that's interesting. Oh, and finally, uh, this is another interesting case that, uh, that I saw. This involves a 52-year-old blind man, and he was crossing a street in Rutherford, New Jersey. And he was close to the crosswalk, but not in the crosswalk. And he had his, um, his walking stick, you know, one of those 
white canes, red and white canes. So you could clearly see, if you looked at his cane, that, that he was blind. And he was walking across the street, and while he's walking across the street, he gets hit by a car. And he's injured. Um, so he ultimately sues, and he argues that the driver of the vehicle violated a state statute that requires motorists to yield to blind pedestrians. The driver of the vehicle tried to um, attribute some contributory negligence onto the pedestrian and, and essentially argued that he should have been more careful, he shouldn't have been crossing that intersection. If you know, Even though he's blind, he should have been in the crosswalk and uh, that obviously did not go too far, and the case ultimately settled for $275,000. Now, the injury was essentially some uh, you know, scrapes and bruises, but a torn meniscus in the right knee, which was repaired by arthroscopic surgery. So uh, that sort of injury typically does not have that high of a value, $275,000, but in this case it did. And it was a settlement, not a jury award. Um, But something else that's interesting out of this case, we've talked in the past about auto insurance and what your policy limits are. There is a very good chance the driver of this vehicle had an insurance policy that was a $100,000 limit. And you can see that this case settled for $275,000. So there is a good chance that the driver had to contribute the balance of the money. And uh, you know, that's something that we've talked about with respect to auto insurance and making sure that your policy is sufficient to cover potential claims. All right, I want to remind everybody that we are coming up upon the uh, annual coat drive that we do here at the firm, and we're looking for donations, men, women, and children's coats. They're going to be distributed through our partner, Jersey Cares, and they're going to go to um, people in, in New York and New Jersey who need coats this winter. And uh, I think I mentioned last week, this is really a unique opportunity. Uh, it's a little easier to donate 25 or $30 to a particular charity, but you never really, as the giver, get the benefit of knowing that your monetary donation affected somebody's life. Uh, whereas this is a wonderful opportunity because by donating your coat, it's going directly to somebody in our area, you know, New York, New Jersey, tri-state area, that doesn't have a coat this winter. And you know, your gift, your donation will directly impact them. So we're going to be a collection center as we were last year. Um, you can drop off your coats during our regular business hours, and we will give you a, uh, a receipt provided by Jersey Care so that you can use it for your tax deductions. So if you're interested in learning more about that or uh, where we're located, you can go to our website or you could call call us directly. It's 973-949-3700.
1-800-273-7070. And speaking about websites, I want to let you know that Understanding the Law now has a new website. It's at www.understandingthelawradio.com. And you can go on to that site. And there's opportunities to offer to be a guest on the show. There's also an overview of what the next episode or the next show, what the topics are so that you can uh, look through them. And if you have questions, gather your questions so that you can call into the show and ask those questions. Uh, There's also upcoming special events and things that are going on as well as um, an opportunity to sponsor a show. And it's a good opportunity for, uh, small businesses to sponsor the show. Um, basically, what we're going to be offering is a one sponsor per show option, and the business will be mentioned four times during the course of the broadcast. And these advertising opportunities, they're going to start you know, at $25. So certainly it's affordable for small businesses. It gets your name out there to our listeners. So that's all on our website You can also listen to archived versions of the broadcast. And uh, in the next few weeks, the broadcast will be available for download through iTunes as well. Um, All right, next I want to talk about one final thing. Next week on the show, it's October 31st, Halloween, we are going to have as special guests Cyril Wecht and Donna Kaufman. Cyril Wecht is a um, rather well-known and relatively famous medical examiner. And Donna Kaufman is an author, and she writes typically books about, uh, or or, um, a journalist, I should say, about uh, true crime cases. And Cyril Wecht and Donna Kaufman have come together, and they've written a book. It's called Final Exams. It's an ebook which can be purchased through Amazon. And they're going to talk with us next week about the book, about uh, some of Cyril's um, you know, experience. He's been on very, very high-profile cases um, over the course of his career. So we're excited to have them on, and they'll be talking about their book. If you have any questions or any uh, issues that you'd like to address or want to talk to Cyril Wecht, um, you know, please, we invite you to call. The switchboard number is 347-855-8831. And you'll be able to ask them questions and get some answers from them next week. Well, we're a little early today, but we're going to uh, wrap up. And I hope to see everyone here next week on Halloween at 10 o'clock, and uh, we'll be able to talk to Cyril Wecht. So I'd like to thank you for joining me. We'll be back next week. We'll have more legal and business news. Uh, If you have any questions or you want to discuss a legal issue or if you want to raise a topic that you'd like to hear discussed on the show, give us a call at 973-949-3770, or you can email us directly at info, I-N-F-O, at Peter Lamont, that's P-E-T-E-R-L-A-M-O-N-T-E-S-Q dot com. 
Until next time, thank you for joining me. And remember that there's power in understanding the law.